what if there were a fountain of youth pill that could add decades to your life? Would you take it? Unlocking the Fountain is a podcast about the mysteries of aging and the scientific quest to slow, stop, or even reverse it. When do you think we're going to have the first 150-year-old? I think that person's already alive. Unlocking the Fountain. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I had always thought that because we were, we were Syrian, we were Italian, we were a little bit different than a lot of the people that I grew up with. So I just thought, okay, well, we're different. Mom's different. Um, Ma is already more demonstrative and more passionate and more, <laughs> more expressive than my friend's mom's. So I didn't really think it was, it was um, a bad different. I just thought it was different. This is Ash. Uh, I'm Ash Abraham, and I'm an associate producer and reporter at CBC Ottawa. Ash moved to Canada years ago, but she was born and raised in Nashville, Tennessee. I think somebody in our family got the itch to do music, and then my entire Syrian and Italian family moseyed down south. Nashville in the 90s, uh, church is everything. Like, church is church is where you meet your friends. It's where you, it's it's a community hub. Like, it's doesn't matter if you're religious or not. That's you're you're at the church on Sundays. So my mom, my mom taught Sunday school. My mom would volunteer to teach preschoolers with these puppets and flannel graph boards. <laughs> so tell me about her. What was she like when you were young? Ah, she was she was so creative. She was a children's book writer. She's a fashionista. And she made the best kibbe in town. Uh, she knew how to make incredible Italian dishes and incredible Syrian dishes. She taught me how to read. She taught me how to read poetry and write stories, say my prayers. She cared about the little things uh, for us. Ash has this one memory that she says perfectly encapsulates her mom, or ma, as she calls her. We did a ballet dance together. You know, we had one of those fireplaces that was off the ground. It was made of red bricks. And so I would stand on the the fireplace like it was a stage and she would twirl me around. Um, and this song was about something about, it was, it was one of those cheesy like power ballad songs about being a mom. Um, but she performed it with me. And I, I know she did that for me because she's not somebody who needed to be in the spotlight or anything like that, you know? She just wanted to do something that would make you happy. Yeah. I was really shy when I was a kid. So I, I knew, I, I, I think, looking back, I think she did that uh, to help bring me out of my shell and to get me on stage. She knew that I would, I would go on stage if I was with her. I, I, could, I could do it if I was with her. We did it together. I haven't thought about that in a while. I mean, she's, she sounds like a really good mom. Yeah, she was a really good mom. And that's what she was. She was kind, gentle, easygoing person. And it's just so different from who she is now. It's so different. When Ash was in grade two, maybe eight years old, her mom changed. I remember one morning before school, Ma couldn't get out of bed. I went into her bedroom and tried to wake her up and she just, 
kind of rolled over and shooed me away. Um, one day turned into several weeks, and then before I knew it, um, family members were flying in from out of town and saying that she was having a nervous breakdown. Um, and then when she woke up, it was like she was somewhere else. It was kind of like she couldn't hear me. It'd be like trying to speak with somebody underwater. I just knew that she was really tired. I thought my mom just really needs to sleep a lot. Um, and for some reason, she's really sad, and I don't know why. So Ma could be like this for days. But then, out of nowhere, she would switch again. Not back to her old self, but something else. When she, when she wasn't in bed, she'd have so much energy. She'd take us on these massive shopping sprees. Um, and we'd hear <laughs> mall security guards say, Ma'am, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because mom would lose it when her credit card was declined. The family broke up after that um, because she started to push everybody away. So this big family that came down to Nashville together to do music started to, to deteriorate. And she, she pushed everybody away. I mean, you can only curse out people so many times before they stop trying to help, you know. Except for you. Except for me. Except for me. That's right. Except for me. I'm AC Rowe. This is The Doc Project. Today's story is years in the making. It's about what happens when someone you love gets sick, and it feels like there's nothing you can do to make it better. What happened with Ash's mother? It was not a nervous breakdown. For years, Ash had no idea what was going on. Nobody did. Not really. Now, she wants to understand. To figure out not only what happened with her mother, but what's going on in her head now. And Ash wants to figure out what she can do, if anything, to help her. To help them. I held off telling Ma's story in the past because it's hard to tell a story of somebody when you're you're not clear what's going on with them, when you don't really know what the story is. Um, but, I mean, this story is as much about me as it is about her. And, and I also know there's a lot of other kids who probably experience things like this. I don't, we, we can't be the only family out there <laughs> like, like this. Um, so I thought maybe I would make a radio doc. And that would be the best way to tell this story because the listener could actually hear what it sounds like to love someone like Ma. Ma knows Ash is making this doc, and she has given her permission for Ash to use some of the tape you'll hear. But her situation is vulnerable and ongoing, so we have decided not to use her name. We'll just stick with Ma. Ash will take it from here. Were you to eavesdrop on a phone conversation between my friends and me when I was a teenager, it would have sounded a lot like this. Hello? Hey, what are you doing today? Do you want to hang out? 
Uh, I wish, but it's Chemical X today. Sorry. Are you okay? Do you want to come over to my house? Maybe. Give it... Let me, let me call you back in an hour. Okay. Sounds okay, good. Bye. I used to call Ma's up and down spells Chemical X. Chemical X. I stole it from the Powerpuff Girls on the Cartoon Network. Powerpuff Girls were born! Using their ultra superpowers, Blossom, Bubbles, and Buttercup have dedicated their lives to fighting crime and the forces of evil! Chemical X gives the girls superpowers. But Chemical X also gives the girls' arch-nemesis Mojo Jojo his evil superpowers. Funnily enough, this reminded me a lot of Ma. Her mood swings could be used for evil or for good. Cursing out the clerk at Banana Republic for declining her credit card? Bad. Staying up all night helping me with the school project? Good. And it was just an easy way to talk about Ma to friends. Like my friend Shannon. I'm Shannon Wallace. I am your friend and I'm a social worker and I have like 10-ish years uh, social work experience. Most of that is in doing mental health assessments. Our friendship has evolved from landlines to flip phones and now to Zoom calls. What time is it in London? It is 10.37. Shannon and I have known each other since we were 10 years old. We were university roommates, we were bridesmaids in each other's weddings, and we both married Canadians. Both of us are American by birth, but Canadian by choice. But today we're talking about Ma. She's very tiny. Um, She's very, very pretty. She looks like she takes care of herself. And she is very intense. She never leaves the house without a fresh coat of red lipstick, a brightly color-coordinated outfit, and she looks totally put together. But appearances can be deceptive. Shannon saw the whole thing unravel, where I went from having a mom who was fully present and fully involved and loving and attentive to a mother who was vacant and often clearly in another place that we couldn't access. Shannon is one of the few people I feel like I can talk to about Ma because she's seen it all, growing up with me and in her years as a social worker. She doesn't get wide-eyed with horror or concern. She lets me laugh when I need to. I find myself reminiscing with Shannon about some of Ma's defining quirks, like her bags. Let's talk about the bags. So when, yes. when, when a lot of people say your mother gave you a lot of baggage, they might be <laughs> <laughs> talking metaphorically. No, but in, in my case, I actually mean physical baggage. She comes with a lot of emotional baggage, and she literally comes with baggage. Yep, everywhere. So somewhere along the line, gosh, I don't know. I think I would have been in third or fourth grade. Um, One day, she just packed a big black suitcase. So the suitcase would have been half of her size, right? Yeah. And every time she would leave her apartment, she would take the suitcase with her. And then she'd put it in the car... If she went to go get groceries, she would take the suitcase in the grocery store. It wasn't like she just left the suitcase in the car. Or if she was pumping gas, she would have the suitcase out with her while she's pumping gas. My favorite is when she was in church, (laughs) she would take the suitcase into the sanctuary (laughs) and say we were sitting in the middle aisle in the middle of the pew. She would roll the suitcase in the pew and like run over people's toes because there's not a lot of room in a pew 
so she and she didn't care like she had no sense of pride at that point about it she's just this is what i do these are my suitcases i need them (laughs) right right (laughs) oh the audacity i love the audacity though I don't know if it's misplaced respect or kind of awe of her back then Mm -hmm. because she was so unapologetic about Mm -hmm. her eccentricities and and it's oddly refreshing to see somebody not give a damn. Over the years, I've learned to cope through laughter. It may sound callous, but finding humor in this grim situation is how I've managed to stay upright and survive. Those bags were not filled with useful travel items. No, no. I mean, it's it's pretty heartbreaking in a way. They were just memorabilia. They were photos and our christening gowns and yearbooks and eventually death certificates and divorce papers and, you know, um, important things. But, but that was when she had a car. But then, of course, the car. <laughs> One of my memories of being friends with you in high school, <laughs> there was... Um, a period of a few days or a week or something where you were driving around your mom's car because you were trying to keep it away from your apartment because if you drove it home, they were going to repossess the car. And so I had totally yeah. forgotten about that. That's <laughs> yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. You were pretty casual about it. Like you were just kind of like, do you want to go to the mall? Do you want to go to Starbucks? What are you, what are you doing today? I can drive you. And I was like, okay. I don't remember being all that concerned about your well-being. I mean, I think I was a little bit, but I was just kind of like, oh, you need to hide a car? Okay, I'll hide it with you. The issue here was my mom had lost her job and wasn't making payments on her car. I remember too, around that time, driving around with you in my car out on the like country roads near my house and you were getting frustrated with your mom. You were like really protective of her. I mean, I remember the way you put it was that she doesn't think she can work. Yeah, it was frustrating because that meant that she was going to have to leave. Yeah. I knew she wasn't well, so we would, we, my sister and I would beg her to get on disability or get on a government program or try, if, if you can't work, fine, let's figure it out. Right, even though she's entitled to low-income money and, and like disability money she won't take it because she thinks those are for poor people and she doesn't think she's poor she doesn't think those things are for her first it was the car the car got repossessed and then she got evicted and then had and moved away Mom moved away when I was in high school and became estranged from most everyone in our family. She moved in with her sister and brother-in-law in Boston, and I moved in with my dad. Ma eventually settled in my uncle's vacation home in Florida, and he supported her there ever since. So Ma and I have lived apart for 15 years now. I grew up, moved out of my dad's place, went to university, got married, and moved very, very far away to Ottawa. We've kept in touch mainly through email, and she always sends me cards and letters to mark each and every holiday. I'd visit her about once a year and try to convince her to get help to figure out what's wrong with her, but we'd always end up arguing because she doesn't believe there is anything wrong with her. Then, two years ago, I got a call from my uncle. He wasn't sure how much longer he could support Ma financially. My chest tightened, 
and a heavy sense of responsibility and fear flooded my body. Because without his help, she'd be homeless. So, in the summer of 2019, I headed down to Florida. We are in Florida. And I just got off the plane. Now I'm heading to the baggage claim to see my mom. Oh, I see her. She's so little. She's wearing a black floral dress with little flip-flops that are like two inches. Thanks for coming to pick me up. How long have you been here? No, this is all I have. We can go. I couldn't put my finger on why exactly, but Ma looked different. When we went back to the house, I realized she was different. And I started recording our conversations, thinking maybe it would be helpful for a doctor to hear one day. Ma was aware I was recording, and she has given me permission to use it in this doc. Up until this point, I had assumed she was suffering from some kind of mood disorder. But this recording is the moment I realized it was something worse. Did you meet Bruce Robert last year in the guys in camouflage? I don't think so. I guess a lot. Ma's asking me if I saw one of her old book publishers, okay. a guy she hasn't worked with since I was a little kid. I don't know. I don't. Where would I have met them? Oh no! Tell me. At the wedding? I don't think so. She thinks I might have seen him at my sister's wedding, and I think she's telling me they were wearing camouflage. Okay. Where were they? I mean, that seems odd. But then she says something else. Yeah. Did you see Bill and Hillary there? Did you catch that? She asked me, did you see Bill and Hillary there? As in, Bill and Hillary Clinton. Oh, Mom, no. Not inside the sanctuary. No, Mom, they weren't there. They were in the foyer. Mom? Where are you seeing them? Why did... That's weird. <laughs> I love you so much. Frank, if they were there and I missed them, I'm the worst journalist ever. <laughs> I cracked a joke because I was so freaked out. But that was the moment I realized my mom was suffering from delusions. She thought Bill and Hillary Clinton were at my sister's wedding. Ma believed a whole host of strange and untrue things, like she was married to somebody and had a million-dollar check coming her way. I still have a million-dollar check that never has been given to me. I actually made more that has never been given to me. Did you ever see that check, darling? Do you ever remember it? I don't remember that. Do you ever remember that million-dollar check that really was a royalty? She thinks the million-dollar check is royalties for a children's book she wrote. It's true, she does have some royalties coming in, but only ever a few hundred dollars a year, if that. Oh, that re- which book was it? It really did come. Then I said, Ashley, God in heaven, please look at this. This wasn't Chemical X. Highs and lows and eccentric behavior. The delusions were something new, and some of them were violent. 
she thought someone had held us both at gunpoint and stolen her million-dollar check. And she thought she had a twin that was murdered. Strange things like that. I was afraid. Not of her, but of what was in her mind. We argued for days about her going to the hospital. If that means we have no relationship, then adios! But I don't want that, Mom. I'm just what kidding. I'm saying is, if I say I know I am fine, now if you try to act like you know what's going on from that back bedroom over there, and you think you can explain to everyone on earth what took place here and there, you're lying. I called the police to see if they could help. An officer showed up at the door and we invited him inside. How you doing? I'm Deputy Robin from the Sheriff's Office. Why, is someone dead? No. Paramedics pulled into the driveway and unloaded a stretcher. The officer towered above Ma, but she didn't blink. I'm not going to the doctor! That didn't work. Apparently, only someone who is suicidal or homicidal can be involuntarily hospitalized. Do you have any history of mental illness in your family? Never. She'd like you to go get checked out at the hospital. I don't want to go to the hospital. I can't force you to go to the hospital. She's concerned about you, enough for her to call 911, obviously. She says you, you just haven't been acting normal. Over the next few days, I ran into one roadblock after another. I visited hospitals, nonprofits, phoned up shelters and charities and government agencies, explaining my ma's situation again and again. Have you tried calling the police, they'd all say? Yes, I'd say. Then they'd recommend another agency who would recommend another agency and so on. The conclusion was always, your mother is going to need to get an assessment from a doctor before we can help. I began to panic. Then one social worker I spoke to suggested, off the record, that maybe I play into Ma's delusions to convince her to see a doctor. So I came up with a scheme. I had a friend from Nashville phone her up, pretending to be her old publisher, and saying the million-dollar check would be released pending psychiatric evaluation. I know how this sounds. It sounds bad. I tricked her into seeing a doctor. Probably failed Ethics 101 there. But please, just take a second and consider what my options were. I tried everything. Persuasion was useless, and I had no idea what else to do. And the ruse? It worked. Ma might not have been willing to see a doctor for herself, or for me, but she was willing to see one when it fit into the delusion. The next day, I took her to see a doctor, and we got an assessment. After years of only guessing at what was happening to Ma, we finally got a diagnosis. Ma had schizoaffective disorder with psychosis. The doctor asked my ma to leave the room so he could speak to me privately. 
He told me that she was having delusions and she'd need to take antipsychotic medication and start therapy to get better. I was relieved to hear that getting better could be within reach. Great, I said. When? Then he shrugged and said, Decorum is obviously very important to your mother. And then he said there was nothing he could do for us until she accepted that she was sick first. And that it was obvious to him that she wasn't going to do that. I argued with him. I wanted him to arrange for someone from the hospital to visit her at home. I knew she wouldn't go back to the doctor on her own. I told him that she was going to be on the streets soon and that getting her to see a doctor again would be nothing short of a miracle. But he said there was nothing he could do for her until she accepted her diagnosis. Of course, Ma did not accept the diagnosis and would not accept medication or treatment. But to me, it felt like a small victory because from there, just having a doctor's diagnosis meant I could apply for some financial support for her. Enough for my uncle to be able to allow her to remain in his house. I filled out hours of paperwork and online forms, hugged her goodbye, and I flew back to Ottawa. When I landed and turned my phone back on, my voicemail was full of calls from the support programs I had applied for, informing me that Ma had canceled most of that support before she even received it. We were back to square one. AC here. Coming up, Ash enlists back up. From CBC Podcasts and The Fifth Estate, Brainwashed is a multi-part investigation into the CIA's experiments in mind control. From the Cold War and MKUltra to the so-called War on Terror. We learn about a psychiatrist who used his patients as human guinea pigs and what happens when the military and medicine collide. Listen to Brainwashed on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's been about 18 months since I took that trip to Florida. That was back when we could travel. Ma is still living with my uncle. She avoided immediate eviction, although he'd like to see her move out and take care of herself. Now I'm here in Ottawa, and I feel totally powerless. I'm mad at her illness, and I'm mad that she doesn't understand how much she's hurting herself and how much she's hurting our family. It's so hard to watch all of this from a distance. I want to do something to change the situation, but how? If there's one thing I've learned, I can't change Ma. But maybe... Maybe I can change me. I want to understand her so I can stop feeling like we're always one breath away from crisis. Maybe if I know more about her condition, I can anticipate what's coming down the road. 
But I also want to understand her so that if there's anything I can do to help her, I know what that is. My name is Marcia Sirota. I'm a psychiatrist and I live and work in Toronto. So my ma, um, she was recently diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder with psychosis. Can you explain to me what exactly that is? Yes, that's an interesting condition. Schizoaffective disorder is kind of in between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. I call Marcia over Zoom on a cold day in January. I'm under a fuzzy blanket in the corner of my bedroom, gripping a microphone in one hand and shooing my cat away with the other. Marcia's in her home office. For so many years, the goal was getting my mom a diagnosis. Now that we have it, I realize I don't know much about schizoaffective disorder. I'm nervous and bracing myself for what Marcia is about to say. So schizophrenia is a psychotic disorder where the person will have delusions, which are false, fixed ideas. So distorted ideas about things that you cannot get them to stop thinking or believing. And as well, they'll have hallucinations, usually auditory. So voices in their head, either commanding them to do things or commenting negatively about them. And they'll also have combinations of um, sort of lack of energy, lack of motivation, lack of interest, problems with self-care, problems with impulse control, things like that. So that's the psychotic part. That's the schizophrenia. Then she tells me about the bipolar half of the diagnosis. Bipolar disorder is a disorder of mood where the mood will be going between very low and very high. So the person will either be very depressed, low energy, low motivation, poor sleep, poor appetite, or they will be very high energy, talking really fast, up all night, not needing to sleep, very impulsive, sexually acting out, spending too much money, um, getting into all sorts of trouble. That's sounding super familiar. Do we know why people develop schizoaffective disorder? It's uh, biological. It's, a, it's an illness. Like, uh, why do people get cancer or diabetes or heart disease? It's often genetic. So if you have family members who have mental illness, and it doesn't have to be a psychotic illness like schizophrenia, but any kind of mental illness in the family will increase your genetic risk of having some other you know, mental illness. Great, I think. Now I have to worry about adult acne, stretch marks, and risk of a serious psychotic illness showing up later in life. I joke, but I'm actually terrified. What if this illness derails me? What if I hurt my family? Or what if this shows up in my kids or their kids? The thought is overwhelming. I decide then and there, if I ever get sick, I'm going to make sure that my husband makes me get help. We'll make a pact now while I'm well. So with my mom, she doesn't acknowledge that she's sick at all. And that's been a a massive uh, struggle for my family in trying to get her help. So how often do you encounter a client, especially a client with active psychosis, who doesn't believe that they're sick? Yeah, first of all, I can really hear the pain in your voice. and, And I can say, you know, my heart goes out to you because it's it's a terrible, terrible position for a family member to be in, you know, to love your mother and to want to do what's right for her, to, to do the best for her and for her to be so resistant to your help, which is very common. And that's because part of the illness involves a lack of insight. So with both bipolar disorder and psychotic disorder, so that's schizoaffective has the two, there's very often a component of a lack of insight. So they, they have 
an inability to understand what's going on and therefore they remain in denial about how seriously affected they are. Even though Marcia doesn't know my mom, I find myself clinging to her responses. I have a couple weird specific questions sure. <laughs> about, about my mom. Oh, who I, I love her to bits and she did so many strange things that you just have to laugh at. She would wheel around a suitcase every time she left our house. What, what do you think that's about? <laughs> you know, because I don't know her history, like I am limited, but in terms of guesswork, you know, people who have psychotic disorders, imagine that there's a whole narrative going on in their head about their reality, right? And so there, there could be, I'm not saying that there is, but there could be possibly this story in her head about, you know, her life and what she needs to do to be safe and to be well and to take care of herself that might involve, you know, carrying the suitcase around and maybe she has a narrative that she might have to leave at any time and so she has to be prepared or maybe she has a narrative that that there are things that she needs to have with her to ward off some you know bad something or other right so but you have to recognize that they have a story in their head that is telling them what is real so she's got her version of reality most of the rest of us have another version of reality and so our realities are in conflict and that makes for difficulties because she's operating, you know, on a different script <laughs> and, and we don't know her script and she might not be able to articulate her script to us. She might not be able to say, and it doesn't sound like she was able to explain to you guys why she did what she was doing. Just seems like as the family members, there's only kind of two ways to go about this. And I, I just am wondering if there's another way. The two ways being either pop the delusion, keep the facts straight keep telling them what's true or kind of go along with with their script and and neither feels good um, and neither feels right and I just don't know what the right way to exist alongside them is the way I have dealt with delusions is to say uh-huh okay well that's I can see that that's what you think or I can see that that's what you feel so I acknowledge that that's what they think or feel or believe without acknowledging that I believe it too. So I keep saying, yeah, I can see that that's what you you feel, that's what you believe. I acknowledge that you believe this. I acknowledge that you feel this. I'm on my couch, hunched over my laptop, searching schizoaffective disorder on the internet. I really wish I could speak with Ma. I have so many questions for her. I want to understand her experience but I can't. She's in denial. So instead, I look for someone like her. I Google her condition, and I come across Anita Manley. Her bio is on the Royal Mental Health Center's website. She has schizoaffective disorder with psychosis just like Ma. But unlike Ma, she got help and got her life back. I phone her up, and what's supposed to be a 10-minute conversation turns into an hour. I find myself telling her about my childhood, chemical X, mom not getting out of bed, the bags and the delusion and the denial. And Anita listens to all of it. She has so much in common with Ma, I can practically hear her nodding down the phone. She's a mother whose two daughters went to live with their dad after she got sick. 
Like Ma, she had delusions of being in a romantic relationship with someone. Like Ma, she had pushed everyone in her family away. For years, she didn't believe she was sick. Just like Ma. Then she does something incredibly kind. Amazingly, Anita lives just a few kilometers away from me. She invites me over. We can sit at a fire pit in her friend's backyard. In 200 meters, turn right. I'm just having a hard time believing that this woman is only 15 minutes away turn from right. where I live. That the key to understanding my mom has been this woman who is only 15 minutes away from me this whole time. <laughs> it's a bit of a mind bender. In 500 meters, your destination will be on the left. There she is. Hi, how are you? Nice to meet you. If it was the pandemic, I would just run over and hug you. Even if it wasn't a pandemic, that would be weird, but... <laughs> Can you start by just introducing yourself with your name and your title or how you'd like to be introduced? My name's Anita Manley, and I'm a peer support volunteer with the Women's Mental Health Program at the Royal. So these questions that I've had, I can't go to my own mother and ask her, not to put so much pressure on you today. I've been trying to find somebody who is like my mom, mm -hmm. who can understand her. And for me to be able to find you means that I will be able to have a better understanding of who she is. Mm -hmm. So in a way, you have that same, we can call it weakness, we can call it sickness, illness, whatever you want to call it. Same pain. Yeah. Same pain. Mm -hmm. That's what mm -hmm. it is. Mm -hmm. I was so amazed at how many similarities there were when I was ill, when I was really, really, really at my lowest point and um, homeless and estranged from all my family and friends, I was amazed at how many similarities there were between my, myself with schizoaffective bipolar disorder and your mother. What are you actually hearing when you had your delusions? Well, isn't that interesting? So I believed that through years, of trying to figure this out because it was also strange to me at the beginning. But I believed that I had this angel family. Matter of fact, this is, this is the truth. Yeah. I fell in love, and this is real, not a delusion. I fell in love with my psychiatrist in Calgary, but I believed that he also loved me too. I believed after a while that he was communicating with me through other people, okay? so. And through like? and through songs on the radio, it was it was like you and me talking right now. It wasn't it wasn't any different. So I didn't hear voices. Right. I heard what you were saying exactly right. what you were saying, but I believed it was somebody else saying the the words. I could be sitting here talking to you, but you believe it's him. Yeah. And would you hear my voice, or would you hear his? Or you? No, I would hear your voice. That's so interesting. Just be, just because of the way you say things. Mm -hmm. And when someone said, hey, that's not real, that's weird, what, what, what would you think? Oh, I would argue with them. I would argue with them yeah. and say, yes, it is. And, you know, and they're like, no, no, no. And, yeah. you know, circular. And very yeah. circular. Yeah, right. I was angry a lot because I was like feeling as though these people who I, who I knew but could not see were controlling my life. You know, I believe there were cameras in my house. I believe there were cameras in my car. I believe there were cameras everywhere. Mm -hmm. I said that to my mother, and you could tell she was really upset. She was like, oh, oh, my goodness. You know, I said that to other people. I said, there's cameras 
in in my apartment and they're like oh no there isn't and you know well why don't you get it checked and I'm like well everyone's involved you know (laughs) like who's gonna check check, you know like I mean who's gonna check like I I felt I, I felt um helpless but can you imagine if someone said to me wow I would feel really exposed if I thought there were cameras in my house. And how scary would that be? You know, how scary would that be? If I really believe there are cameras in my house, I would feel really scared, Right. you know, and and nobody has a right to invade your privacy to that level. Did anybody say things like that? No, nobody said anything like that. (laughs) No, they all argued with me. Of course not, yeah. It's like what Marcia said earlier. You can acknowledge what somebody thinks feels or believes without acknowledging that you believe it too. And it seems like that would have gone a long way to helping Anita. So you have children. Yeah, my children are are great. I have two daughters. They're now 28 and 25. My life was falling apart, you know, and and they went to live with their dad full time. Children's aid was involved and Nicola was was just a young teenager and uh, and and Julia was younger than that. They've they've really really suffered, you know, because of my illness. My sister and I we would plead with my mom to get help. So I'm, I'm wondering if you're if you know say your daughter is looking at you, mom get help. Would that have changed your mind, or could that have? I don't a know. I was so entrenched in believing these delusions. I don't know at that time. I I don't think it would have made a difference. But what did make a difference and the turning point for me was when after three years of being estranged from my family, my friends, my beloved daughters, my mother, my brother, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins, everybody, my psychiatrist said to me, do you ever want to see your children again? It was like, you know, a knife to my heart. I think I took a deep breath in and was like shocked. And I said, well, of course I want to see, you know, like I just desperately want to see my children again, you know. And she says, well, then you're going to have to listen to what we have to say. You're going to have to go to every group. You're going to have to take your medication and you're going to have to stop believing that these delusions are real. How hard is that? Well, that was the turning point for me. You know, I said, "Okay, my mission is I want to see my kids again. I want my life back. I don't want to be living this this horrible life that I've been living for the last three years. Mm -hmm. So I just, everything I did from that point on was to see my kids again and recreate and and rebuild a life with them. I'm astounded that you got from believing that there's cameras in your house, transmitters, to having this epiphany when the doctor says, do you ever want to see your daughters again? I mean, to me, that means your family, the angel family that you believe is real, they have to They have to disappear. Yeah, that's that's very insightful of you because um, I need therapy now at present day because I have lost my angel family. They're not around anymore. I mean, sometimes they do appear. I'm not I'm not going to kid you, you know, when I'm under stress. So delusions don't go away. Well, they haven't completely for me. No, they they you know, they keep keep coming back and um that's why I have to manage my life so carefully. Make sure I get enough sleep. Make sure I take my medication. Make sure I, you know, get out and get exercise, that I eat healthily, that I have distractions, that I that I get support and give support with my friends and that I that I have, you know, hope for my future. Unfortunately, due to my illness, 
I was estranged from Nicola for over 10 years, and we just reconnected at her wedding in 2018. Wow. It's uh, so heartwarming, and I just really enjoy, I was just talking to her yesterday, and I really enjoy uh, that connection. What kind of life is there for my mom on the other side? You know, in all honesty, there's a lot of hope for, for your mom. And even if she doesn't feel hope at the moment, you and your sister and other family members can hold on to that hope for her and let her know that. Say, Mom, you know, I'm, I'm hopeful for you. And uh, you might even tell her about our little conversation and that, you know, you've met me and, and, and share, share um, my experiences. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ash. It's been a pleasure. Meeting Anita gives me so much hope. I feel like if she could find her way back to this world, then so could Ma. If only we can find the key. The last time I spoke with Ma was about two months ago. I haven't been able to get through to her since. I updated her on things going on in my life. I'm never really sure if she's processing what I'm saying, so it's a bit like writing in a journal. That day, I told her about a tough situation I was going through, where I was upset by something a friend said to me. I didn't even think Ma was listening, but then out of the blue she said, Don't let anyone steal your joy. She's in there somewhere, even if it's hard to see. And she's still teaching me new things, because she's still my mom. Abraham. That doc was produced by Ash. It was edited by Allison Cook with me, AC Rowe. Special thanks to Ash's team at CBC Ottawa for making it possible for her to work with us these past few weeks and to the CBC Doc Mentorship Program. If you or someone you know is struggling with mental health, there are resources. The Canadian Mental Health Association is a good place to start. Their website is cmha.ca. About a decade ago, when writer Graham Isidore's mom needed him, it wasn't for something big, just a small gesture that let her know he was there when she really needed him. Here's Graham. I'm 21. It's a couple minutes after midnight, a few days before Thanksgiving, and I'm sitting in a hospital room. I'm sitting beside my mother. Mom's in a wheelchair after a nasty slip. As such, she's mostly reliant on others to perform most day-to-day tasks gang around, feeding herself, etc., etc. Mom finds the wheelchair immeasurably frustrating. She's usually really put together in that pantsuit kind of way. For most of my life, she worked as a vice principal, and as such, she's used to being in control of situations. 
The wheelchair means she's not, and that's hard. The hospital room we're in is impossibly white. There's this faint smell of lemon and bleach in the air. The only thing separating us from the other units is this thin blue curtain. It looks like something on TV or the movies, and because of that, I keep on expecting there to be a beep. On TV, there's usually a beep of a heart monitor. But today, there's no beep. Instead, there's a slow, steady, rhythmic breathing. It's mechanical. It goes like this. It sounds like Darth Vader. It's a respirator. The respirator is not for my mom. The respirator is for my dad because he's in a coma, which is the reason we're in the hospital. Dad had taken our dog for a walk earlier that day and he never returned. A stranger found him lying face down in the park by our house. Our dog was running around him in circles, barking frantically. When I got the call earlier that day, I was actually at an experimental puppet show. It was about two marionettes trying to work out their homosexuality in the prairie provinces. It was about as good as you would expect. I got out of the theater and there were 16 missed calls, 42 text messages. The details were hazy, but at that point it was clear that I needed to get to the hospital as soon as I could. The hospital is located in the town beside the town I grew up in. I immediately hail a cab. I rush to the Bay and Dundas bus terminal. I catch the last Greyhound out of the city. I have all this adrenaline. I'm filled with anxiety. I just need to get there. I need to get there as quickly as I could, but when I finally do get to the hospital, there's nothing to do. There's nothing I can do. And so I sit beside my mom, and I wait. There are a lot of things I find difficult about the hospital scene. There are the three needles going into my father's arm. There are the cuts on his forehead. But it's actually the respirator that's the most upsetting. It's breathing for dad because he's no longer capable of breathing on his own. But it also means that even if dad were awake, he wouldn't be able to talk. And for all of my life, dad's been a talker. For most of my life, my father worked as a lawyer, but eventually he worked his way up the ranks and became a prosecutor. Later still, he became a judge. In his life, he gives these grandiose speeches. He makes bold proclamations and he's good at it, but it's not his passion. Dad's passion is stand-up comedy, which is absurd for a couple different reasons. The first is that you don't want your judge working on his top 10 for Letterman. That's just not something you want of a person in that type of authority. The second reason is that dad's not funny. He's not funny. There's this joke he used to tell. I'm never going to forget it. One day he came up to me and he goes, Hey Graham, what's the first thing you know? I was like, what pops? Lay it on me. He said, first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. And I'm like, what? Okay, um, then what happens? And he goes, no, 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 that's the joke. First thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire. And I'm like, is this an Andy Kaufman routine? Like, what are you, what are you talking about right now? I don't understand. So it turns out, first thing you know, old Jed's a millionaire is a lyric to the theme song of the Beverly Hillbillies which is a show that went off the air 18 years before I was born. So that's dad. He's a joker. That was his favorite joke. I want to remind mom of the joke, 
but the hospital room is quiet. Mom is so quiet. She's playing with Dad's wedding ring. We had to take out the ring because his hands had swollen up to three times their normal size. We were told that if we didn't take it off now, we were never going to be able to. With one hand, she's playing with the ring. With the other, she's holding on to my father. Mom, she starts crying. She's crying these short, controlled sobs. She keeps on repeating the words, oh dearie, oh dearie, oh dearie, over and over. But eventually that fades out and things are quiet again. And the only noise left is... At about 4 a.m., Mom works up the courage to put together a few short sentences. She doesn't talk to me. She talks to my dad. She says that it's been days since she had a proper wash. She says that the wheelchair, it makes bathing difficult, showering impossible. She says, I know it's stupid, but I wish I could be beautiful for you right now. I don't even have clean hair. And at that moment, it's like I'm not in the room at all. I remember that this year, my parents would have celebrated their 28th wedding anniversary. I remember that my mom's never had another boyfriend. There's this story she told me once. My parents, they met in university. On one of their first dates, they were on the porch. They were in that tenuous moment before they were about to have their first kiss. And my mom, she turns to my dad and she says, Hey, bet you can't tell a hundred jokes in a row. And dad, he's a joker. He goes, yeah, I can. Mom's like, no, no, you can't. And then dad proceeds to tell joke after joke until she gets tired and goes inside. And they didn't kiss that night but they were married a year and a half later. Mom, she's holding my dad, and it's clear to me what I have to do. I turn to her and I say, you know, I can wash your hair for you. And she's like, oh no, you don't have to do that. And I'm like, it's not a big deal, I'd like to. It's not too much of an inconvenience? No. Mom and I are hesitant about leaving the room at the same time, We don't want dad to be alone. Eventually, I flag down a night nurse, and I get her to wait with him. Then I wheel my mom downstairs to a washroom on a lower floor. Getting mom's head into the sink is difficult. I keep on having to adjust so I don't put too much pressure on her neck, but eventually, I get the positioning right, and I turn on the tap, first cold, then hot. I dispense the pink soap into my hands, and I proceed to lather my mom's hair. In that moment, I know there's all these things I'm supposed to be thinking. I'm supposed to think how unfair all of this is. And I'm supposed to think that it's weird you get to a point in your life and you start taking care of your parents in the same way that they once took care of you. But at the time, I don't think any of that. At the time, all I can think is that washing my mom's hair is really different than washing my own hair. It requires more soap than I ever use. I have to run my fingers through carefully to break up tangles and knots. We wash, we rinse, we repeat. I dry mom's hair as best I can with brown paper towel. When she looks at herself in the mirror, she says, there, that's so much better. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. I say, yeah, no problem. And then we go back to dad's room and we wait because at that point, 
Waiting was all there was left to do. Graham Isidore. Graham is a writer and photographer based in Toronto. That story was written by Graham and produced by me. It originally broadcast back in 2017. That's all for us this week. The Doc Project is produced by Allison Cook, Tanara McLean, Sherry O'KK, Julia Poggle, and Veronica Simmons. Althea Manassin is our digital producer. Our senior producer is Jennifer Warren, and our executive producer is Joan Melanson. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.